0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we'll get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. So let's jump right in. We have a great show for you today. We have two guests joining us. Both of them are former submarine officers. That means they served aboard modern-day U.S. Navy nuclear-powered submarines. I'll state up front that the U.S. Navy Submarine Service is also called the Silent Service, and for good reason. Much of what our guests did in the past while they were on active duty uh it, it's classified. And so what happens out there with America's submarine fleet has to remain classified. So there's certain things that we just cannot talk about. Still, we're going to learn some interesting, perhaps even funny things about what it's like to serve aboard a U.S. Navy submarine. Our guests include Captain Brad Gobboy, who was a 1981 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. He entered the submarine service and after completing his training, was assigned to the USS Henry Clay Brad completed five strategic deterrence patrols with the Blue Crew on clay. A nuclear power expert, Brad Gobboy left active duty in 1988 and began a long and successful career in the energy industry. He is currently with the company Engie Impact, which has a regional office in St. Paul. Brad remained in the Naval Reserves, and in that capacity, he served an important role for both the I-35W bridge collapse in August of 2007, and supported the U.S. Navy response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan in May of 2011. David Bruns graduated from Annapolis in 1988. After completing nuclear power and submarine training, he was assigned to the USS Baton Rouge out of Norfolk, Virginia. We'll hear more about his time underway very shortly. After he left the U.S. Navy in 1994, David started a successful business career. Then, just under a decade ago, he reinvented himself as an, and is now a professional writer. Brad Goboy and David Bruins both joined us today from right here in Minnesota. We were going to have a third guest on today, a, a young Navy lieutenant who also hails from Minnesota. Uh, he serves aboard the USS Scranton out in San Diego, but uh, operational requirements impacted his ability to join us today. Still, with Brad and D- David, we're going to have a fantastic conversation. So, Brad Goboy and David Bruins, gentlemen, welcome to National Security This Week.
0: Thank you, John. Thanks, John
1: so let's get started so brad we'll start with you <clears throat> what drew you to submarines and can you tell us about the selection process when you went through screening
2: sure it's uh th- those are great questions and and uh, again thanks john for the wonderful intro and um and i want to take this opportunity to thank your listeners as well for uh, um their consideration and their interest in submarines and national security um you know, I, I think for every submariner, this this question is always <laughs> is always asked. They ask it throughout their career. Well, how did I end up joining the submarine service? <laughs> and and it's really interesting. And I'm curious uh, what David's experience is as well. Uh, when I um, entered the submarine service, or when I chose to enter the submarine service, it was the fall of 1980. We we're in the middle of the Cold War, uh, beginning of the Reagan uh, years, the buildup of the Navy, and. Um, our adversaries were Russian, and we moved that adversary um, in the ocean, right? It was fleet-to-fleet um, confrontation, and that's where submarines excel. So it was um, it was really interesting. We were, at, at as midshipmen at the Naval Academy, we were getting top-secret briefs from uh, regarding some of the activity that our submarines were performing. Uh, and, and to me, that's where the action was, right? That's where where you go to help um, to create the greatest impact uh, The submarine community was also an elite force uh, is an elite force uh, with high standards of performance and the behavioral expectation of the crew was much higher uh, than expected some of the other services and and that really interests me and we would have uh, submarine officers uh, on the academy campus that would talk about that talk about the differences between uh, their community and the other communities that we did have options in. Um, I knew I could utilize my engineering and math skills. Uh, I was successful at that. So so it checked a lot of boxes. But I do have to tell you, I was seriously considering the Marine Corps. I attended SEAL training one summer, and I went on the Marine Option cruise literally the summer before my senior year. Months before I was making my selection, I was um, rappelling out of helicopters in Hawaii with the Marine Corps. So, so I do love those experiences. I had a blast. But in the end, um, I chose... I chose the submarine service probably both to expand my engineering and my leadership skills.
1: And, and David, how about you? Why why did you choose uh, submarines, and what was the selection process like when when you uh, selected submarines?
0: Sure. So so I was a couple years after Brad. Um, Also, thank you for the invite, and thank you to your listeners for sharing some time with us today. Um, I did not come from a Navy family, and you sort of have to predicate this story with – With this was pre-internet days, so when you showed up at the Naval Academy for not more for many of the people who arrived there, that might have been the first time that they were ever setting foot on the campus. Um, I came into the Navy um, thinking that I wanted to be a submarine officer, but a couple of things happened during my first year there that sort of solidified that and made it the only choice for me. Uh, The first thing was uh, I came into I entered the Naval Academy in July of 1984. And in October of 1984, the book Hunt for Red October came out. And that was originally published by the Naval Institute Press by Tom Clancy, who was also from Maryland. So I had the opportunity to meet Tom Clancy, uh, which was kind of an underwhelming experience at that (laughs) point. This was before he was a huge presence. uh, And he actually sold insurance. Um, I bought a copy of the book, read the book, loved the book. Um, After your first year at the Academy, you go on what's called Youngster Cruise. Every summer, midshipmen go out um, into the fleet and either serve with the Marine Corps or, or uh, on a fleet ship. Uh, you could request to go on a, on a submarine for your, for your Youngster Cruise. I requested that. That summer, summer of 1985, there was a huge Soviet exercise, naval exercise, leveraging off of what Brad said. And um, a huge number of submarines were scrambled off the East Coast, And I was uh, based at Groton at that point, and I was on the USS Albuquerque, and we spent eight weeks um, at sea doing the stuff that Tom Clancy describes in his book, and I was absolutely 100% (laughs) sold. Um, I did have a little bit of a hitch. I was a systems engineering major, and I was doing fine. I I had a good GPA, um, but I really wasn't enjoying the work. And I and I decided at the end of my second year to change my major to be an English major, be a single E major as opposed to a double A major. <laughs> um, uh, that was uh, not an easy decision, and partly because um, when when you go to qualify to be uh, uh, to go into the submarine force, uh, every every uh, at the time almost every other service selection at the academy you you, you selected at the end of your or sort of midway through your last year based on your class rank, which is a combination of, of your academics, your military presence, uh, physical fitness scores. Um, and uh, uh, except for submarines, submarines, you have to go through a separate selection process. You go down to Washington, D.C., You take an oral and a written test, all day test, and then you literally interview with the admiral in charge of the nuclear power program. (laughs) And I knew that that I would have a lot of uh, obvious questions when that happened. Um, I decided to do it anyway. I was interviewed by Admiral McKee. I convinced him that even though I was a single E major, I was double E quality because I had taken all the engineering courses. Um, I should also preface that by saying that um, even at the Naval Academy, uh, you graduate with a bachelor's of science degree no matter what your uh, 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 subject matter is. So I'm probably the only English major you're going to meet who's taken four semesters of calculus, two semesters of chemistry, two <laughs> semesters of physics, thermodynamics, <laughs> hydrodynamics, weapon systems, and a whole bunch of other stuff that uh, that have nothing to do with being an English major. <laughs> sure.
1: So let, let's move on, uh When you were both uh, young officers uh, actively serving on on the submarines, uh, what were your duties aboard the submarines uh, when you served? In other words, what was your primary position as an officer on the crew? Why why don't you go first, uh, David?
0: Sure. So um, uh, the nuclear power training pipeline is about an 18-month program, um, and uh, it's primarily engineering in nature. So the first thing you do when you get on board a submarine, your, your very first activity is to qualify for a watch station. And that's always um, engineering officer of the watch. Uh, the wardroom on a, on, a, on a US Navy submarine is all nuclear, n- nuclear trained officers. With the exception of the supply officer, we do not carry any officers who don't have, have nuclear training. So the first thing you do is go to the engine room and get qualified. You're also assigned a uh, division. My first division was electrical division, which on a submarine is about, I want to say it's about a dozen or so guys uh, with the senior senior chief petty officer uh, that are responsible for all the electrical systems on the ship.
1: So I suspect you quickly found out that you were working for the senior chief when you were a young uh, JG. Is that right?
0: Yeah, you, you, (laughs) you very quickly find out that you really don't know anything. I mean, yes, you've been trained on a nuclear platform at Prototype. Um, but typically, those are test platforms. So while you understand nuclear power and you understand how it works, the specific platform you're operating is, is new to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to learn the specifics. And more importantly, you have to learn how that ship operates. And you have to learn the dynamics of your division. And your chief is literally your best friend um, in a professional sense.
2: At
1: least you hope so. Brad, how about you? <laughs> uh, what were your duties as a, as a junior officer?
2: Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think we're going to play into the, you know, the differences between the FastTech submarine, mm-hmm. BlissMiss submarine, uh, um, also as, as we talk about this. So it's a, it's a great makeup. Uh, the wardroom, uh, that, uh, I was in, uh, in the wardroom is the name for all the officers that are on board. There's, there's 14 to 16 officers on board, uh, submarine. There's about a hundred, 105, um, um, sailors, uh, enlisted sailors on the submarine, and so um, you get about 120 um, on a missile submarine. Back in my day, not not so much today's day, but back in my day, there were uh, officers who qualified specifically in the, on the the missile systems, and they were not nuclear trained. Hmm. Uh, and so, so we did have some folks, and I actually had a roommate who was a history major <laughs> that, <laughs> that 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 started the submarine uh, program. Uh, and then ended up um, um, uh, moving into the missile side uh, of the submarine uh, service, and so so there's a, a great mix uh, in that wardroom. Uh, but when you first get assigned, especially on a ballistic missile submarine, uh, you really focus on the the cycle of the of the submarine. You're you're at sea for a period of time, uh, and then you're then you're uh, in port for a period of time. That's that's regular. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, I, I think, um, yep. uh, later. But, you know, as, when you get on board, you're given a a a smaller division, uh, a division that doesn't require as much responsibility to lead so that you can get qualified uh, on your watch stations. And for a junior officer, it's uh, qualifying as an engineering officer watch, as David said. And you're in charge of running the, the shift crew, uh, for no better term, that, that uh, is responsible for the safe operations of the nuclear reactor. As you gain more experience uh, on board the boat, whether it's in years or number of patrols on a, on a missile boat, you get into larger divisions. Um, the I, I serve five patrols, uh, as you had said earlier. The first patrol, again, uh, focused primarily on qualification on the, uh, on the reactor and given uh, responsibility for what was called the internal communications division. Uh, as you can imagine, with the advancement in technology, internal communications is completely different today than oh, it was sure. before. I don't even think, uh, well, I know that that rating, that specialty doesn't even exist anymore uh, in the <laughs> Navy. So it is interesting to see how that goes. Um, uh, and then my final four patrols, I had the two uh, major engineering uh, department heads, uh, both, or not department heads, but division officer roles, uh, the damage control assistant and the main propulsion officer. And each of those managed either the non Nuclear mechanical aspects of all um, uh, correction maintenance and, and repair of the equipment on the ship and the nuclear side of the mechanical systems so is uh, very interesting and and I love the responsibility of that.
1: So so we live here uh in the upper Midwest here in Minnesota both uh, David and Brad uh, do as well uh pretty far from any of the large naval bases that exist uh in the United States. I think most Minnesotans know about submarines in general, uh, what they look like anyway, right? But they probably don't know much about the missions that US Navy submarines perform. So Brad, let's continue on with you. Uh you yeah. you served on the fleet ballistic missile submarines. Uh, what is the mission of those kinds of submarines? And you again, can you tell us a little bit about it, what it means to be part of the blue crew?
2: Sure, sure. Um, the, the submarine force and, and the ballistic missile submarine force specifically is, is actually one of uh, the arms of the triad of strategic deterrence. If, if folks may recall um, and, and know, we have uh, n- nuclear bombers uh, and we have silos, missile silos. And so the, the Air Force runs both. Uh, those are two arms uh, of the nuclear deterrence triad, but the third arm is the ballistic missile submarine. It's the only arm that can actually keep its missiles hidden from the enemy. And how do we do that? We, we, get, that, um, uh, we get that submarine outfitted and keep it at sea. And, and that's actually uh, the segue into what, what is the blue and gold crew, right? It's the, uh, uh, to keep that submarine at sea, uh, you have to keep the crew at sea uh, almost ideally continuously, but you know over over months at a time some equipment breaks down you run out of food you got to bring that submarine back into port uh, you, you replenish and and you fix the equipment that that um, might have failed broken uh, the submarine has tons of redundant uh, equipment especially the critical components so you can you don't have to return to port just because uh, one uh, piece of equipment might have failed, but you do want to fix that when you get back. So at the end of a patrol, the entire submarine uh, comes back in. You turn over to another crew. It's a it's a complete and official change of command and a swap out of the entire crew. You spend two or three days turning over to that crew. They come on board, and the blue crew, which was what I was on, uh, then re- goes back to the home port. We continue our training. We 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 stay proficient. We we uh, learn about the new activity that has gone on since we've been out on patrol uh, and the gold crew. So so each crew, one crew is named the blue crew, one crew is named the gold crew, two commanding officers, two entire chain of commands, two, two authority, um, and two very separate authorities. And and they will then take over that um, the submarine, uh, finish uh, all the repairs, get it replenished to be able to go out to sea. And then they take it out for, uh, the extended period of that patrol, uh, and and then about three months later, we swap it out again, and we just go on that that flip flop uh, year round. So it's a very uh, it's a it's a structured um, pathway and and chronology, um, but it's really important because uh, and and I I have to remember a, an adage that a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. I think we've all heard that. Uh, and, uh, and that's from John Augusta shed that comment, um, is really about the submarines. You have to get them out to sea to make them effective. And especially the ballistic missile submarines, if they're not out, uh, covering their targets, then, then why have them? They they can't be important.
1: Sure. So blue, blue and gold crews on uh, fleet ballistic missile submarines. Uh, you, you leave port, you submerge and you disappear for what is it? 70 days. And then you come back, uh, uh, come back to home port, swap out? Is that kind of how it works?
2: Yep, over 70 days. Over
1: 70 days, all right. Yep. All right, so David, you were on a fast attack uh, submarine, nuclear-powered fast attack submarine. Uh, what, what kind of missions did you perform uh, when you were serving back
0: then? Yeah, so so life on a on a fast attack is 180 degrees out. Uh, there's <laughs> one crew, and that crew is responsible for the ship in its entirety, maintenance, uh, operational necessities, et cetera. There is no crew that you can fall back on if you need to do training uh you either do the training when you're in port or you leave people behind and then they they uh, catch up uh, with the ship uh the missions of a fast attack submarine are very varied they can be anything from supporting fleet exercises um so uh you know surface ships and uh p3s and uh things can can train trying to find submarines um to uh doing things on underwater test ranges uh the the navy maintains a underwater test range down in the caribbean off of st croix uh so you're testing torpedoes and things like that uh but most importantly you're really and again putting this in the context of the time uh of the cold war so uh i was in during before the cold war ended and after the cold war ended so so i was there right at the crux of that change but um and I think Brad mentioned this earlier, uh, when we trained, uh, we had three competitors and they were the Soviets, the Soviets and the Soviets. (laughs) And that was it. That's all we trained for. Um, So um, uh, the primary mission of an East Coast-based submarine was often Northern deployments, which is patrolling off the North Coast of the Soviet Union. So doing Tom Clancy type stuff, uh, finding, tracking, looking for the Soviet fleet ballistic missile submarine. So (laughs) Brad's counterpart on the risky side um we would spend a lot of time doing that so so you would typically have a workup to a deployment of maybe three six months uh three months on deployment and then back um and that would be a northern run so i am a blue nose sailor which is means it uh, means that i've crossed the arctic circle uh actually i'm a multiple blue nose sailor <laughs> uh because i because i've been there a couple of times but that so the the mission of a fast attack submarine is very varied um, and, it, and it changes very rapidly, so you really don't know the schedule. And, you, and even if you do, you can't tell your your family. So when I left, I would be gone for a few weeks usually, but it's not like I'll be back next Thursday. It's like I'll be back sometime. And again, <laughs> speaking of of the uh, sort of the time, you you didn't really have email, so yeah. uh, when you were out, you were gone. You there there was no communications home. So it was a very, very different time in terms of uh, maintaining family relations and and in terms of how we operated.
1: All right, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080, and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are two naval officers who served aboard modern-day U.S. Navy submarines. Uh, Brad, let me ask you this. uh, Quick sea story, what kind of funny things happen out there uh, while you're on deployment? What can you share
0: with us?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, uh, one of the one of the funnier uh, tales, or one of the funnier experiences, uh, and and kind of the authorized fun, is uh, <laughs> halfway night, right? You you know when when um, uh, especially on Bliss submarine, you know schedules do do change, uh, but you kind of know where what is that that calculated halfway night, and then you celebrate the countdown, right? You know, pretty soon we'll be back to family. We'll be back in port. Um, and, and you watch the, the de-evolution of the crew as you've been out to sea longer and longer and longer. And, and, and you start knowing what people's buttons are, you know, how to push them when, when maybe not to push them and, and, and just the, the whole concept of uh, understanding human nature and, and the human nature, uh, under stress. And so it's really important that, that, uh, as human beings that uh, we, Discover how to um, how to create some levity, even in some very stressful and um, and uh, situations where you, you know you're just not uh, so happy being away from home. There, there are people, as, as David said, uh, communications we can't send communications home, but we could get communications uh, from our loved ones. Um, they're called family grams, and there was uh, it was a form that you sent to your loved ones. At home, at the time, I wasn't married, so I would send them to family members, uh, girlfriends, whatever, and and say, "Hey, please write me, right? Uh, Send me a note, just just send some kind of communication." And these would come over teletype, right? We literally had the yellow, you know, teletype printers uh, uh, on board, and then the radio men would snip off the the little messages, and there'd be this nice decoration. But there were. They're really public record, right? I mean, sure. everyone could see because they came over a broadcast, and we had we had proposals that were coming over these messages. We had people missing um, missing each other, but it was really funny because the crew would literally read. Okay, you get forty blanks. How come you didn't fill out all forty blanks? Right? You'd you'd be having these swaps and countdowns of. My wife loves me more. My girlfriend loves me more because they <laughs> filled out every four, all 40 blanks versus others. And, and and then of course some some sad times, uh, people wouldn't get their family grams. Right, sure. there'd be this big distribution of family grams uh, to the crew, and then mm-hmm. uh, and and you'd only get it when you could come up on uh, your periscope depth, put an antenna up, and receive radio communications. Um, the list. Generally, ballistic missile submarines didn't do that very often, right? So you'd, you'd get this download, everyone would get excited uh, about the family grams that would be coming in. Uh, and then, you, then you'd give each other a hard time. But, but for the crew that didn't get it, you would find ways to boost their spirits up, right? It was really uh, a supportive endeavor, and, and uh, you'd, you'd basically just uh, watch out for each other, right? Because uh, everyone was dressed, and, and one of these halfway night concepts... Is we would actually put skits together, right, to keep keep the crew happy, laughing, and it was a what few times you could actually poke fun at the commanding officer. All right. and, and and if they had a quirk or if they had if they always said one thing a certain way, you could uh, create skits and parodies of things that were going on, and and it was all good because uh, that was the one time where you could uh, poke fun at the chain of command.
1: So it's all about morale and esprit de corps and uh, taking care of your people. Yeah. Uh, David, how about you? How about a quick uh, sea story?
0: Yeah, so, so I have one of the more unique uh, sea stories out there. Uh, the submarine I was on was involved in a collision with a Soviet su- submarine.
1: Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Let's hear more about board. that. Um,
0: yeah, so it's, uh, and, um, it's, it's actually a matter of public record because of when it happened. Um, if you recall, uh, the Soviet Union fell on Christmas Day of uh, 1991. And the submarine I was on was, uh, was on deployment uh, shortly thereafter. So if you can imagine as, as the Soviet Union was devolving, um, uh, there was a lot of concern within the United States about what was going to happen to those, to those uh, uh, submarines. And we happened to be uh, on a, on a Northern deployment uh, when this happened. Um, So in February of uh, 1992, The USS Baton Rouge was involved in a collision with a Russian submarine uh, somewhere in the international waters off uh, Murmansk. Um, uh, This kind of thing has happened before, but the name of the submarine has never been released before. So this was brand new. Um, And it was because the Soviet Union had collapsed. It had collapsed into the Commonwealth of Independent States. Boris Yeltsin, if you recall him, had actually made a personal plea to uh, to uh, Secretary of State James Baker to make this right. And so, when we were transiting home, uh, slightly damaged, um, we actually heard on CNN our name being announced hmm. that uh, we had had a collision with a Russian submarine in international waters um, in in the Barents Sea. It was it was shocking because. Uh, we as as a matter of fact, I was on watch when that when that information came across, and uh, we actually went back to Periscope Death to verify <laughs> because we couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, if you get a newspaper from uh, shortly thereafter on the front page of USA Today, you see a little cartoon thing with a with a U.S. submarine and then a Soviet submarine coming up underneath it, and a little little bang where they where they bumped. Um, uh, one of the things that happens when you go uh, on, a, um, on a northern deployment like that is you balloon the crew of the submarine from the normal 110 and you bring on a lot of extra people who have a lot of special skills. And one of those skills is, uh, you know, Soviet language things and, and uh, cryptography type stuff. So um, we knew that both submarines were, were okay. Uh, nobody was sunk. But it was uh, a shock to us that we would be publicly outed like that, and it was uh, something that um, uh, that really sort of uh, cements the our training in you. And so, so um, I can't really talk about how it happened, but one thing I can talk about is when it happened. We obviously sounded a collision alarm, and I don't know how many collision drills you run over the course of your navy career, but probably thousands. <laughs> and uh, that's when you shut all the watertight bulkheads, and each each compartment reports in. And typically, it takes a couple of minutes for that to happen. It probably happened in less than thirty seconds wow. for real. Oh. So, so what that means is that is that <clears throat> everybody just acted out of muscle memory mm-hmm. because they had done it so many times, and they were so well trained that when the real thing happened, and and this is really. A lesson about why we do so many drills which become mind-numbingly repetitive but the reason is because when the real thing happens you are absolutely there and you know exactly what to do without even thinking about it
1: training training
0: training 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 exactly
1: uh, so, gentlemen, I, I think many people wonder what it's like to be underwater for weeks or even months at a time. So, w- what are sleeping accommodations like for the crew? Is the food any good? And how do you take showers or go to the bathroom in a ship that is under so much pressure at depth? Uh, Brad, we'll go to you.
2: Yeah the um, the it, it is it is interesting. The the crew's birthing is different than the officers birthing. Um, just the conversations and the strategy planning that that's going on in one area to the other. It's not the submarines aren't that big. It's pretty easy to get from one place to another if you if you need to get there. Uh, the, the cruise area is three bunks high. You know, crammed uh, in in one section of the of the submarine on the ballistic missile submarine. Um, um, and then that's where the main birthing area is. that's where, you know, showers are common showers, um, a number of, uh, heads or, or bathrooms, uh, toilet areas. The bunks are three bunks high. The bunk that I was in, if I rolled over, I, my shoulder would hit the bottom of the bunk above me. Right. (laughs) So, so you literally are in, in these, uh, coffin like, um, uh, apparatuses, but it was your, it was your one place you could be, you could get away from. Uh, everything kind of people still track you down in your bunk if you need to <laughs> sign things or or give permission um but but um, the accommodations are the accommodations uh, i think you guys have heard if the, if the crew has an extended number of people sometimes sometimes you had a hot bunk uh, a couple of folks two people would share the same bunk we try not to make that happen but you went once you departed with your number of people, you didn't return back and right. say, oh, we have, you don't have enough bunks on board. Right. So you just make it work. Uh, it's it's really interesting um, how that how that goes. When you step into the crew space, uh, we were saying over time, um, you know, everything that would happen. Sometimes there'd be fresh vegetable bags. If it's the beginning of a patrol, you've got vegetable bags literally hanging from the rafters, right, <laughs> hanging from the structure uh, above the above the hallways with potatoes and fresh vegetables until they ran out, right? We would try to go out to see with as many fresh vegetables as possible. We operated out of Hody Lock. We would get local vegetables. And it was, it was as if you are um, you were living a World War II movie uh, that you saw. I said, really? I'm dodging uh, baked <laughs> potatoes. But you would. Uh, and then eventually fresh vegetables ran out. If you... Um, um, if you're willing to accept eating eggs, the eggs were dipped in a, a paraffin, some type, some type of wax. And if, as long as you ate an egg every day, you wouldn't notice the taste change <laughs> as,
1: the,
2: <laughs> as the time continued. But if you like ate an egg the first couple of days, and then two weeks later decided, Hey, I think I'll have an almond. You'd be eating. I'm going, Hmm, something, <laughs> something tastes not quite right about this thing. Um, but, the, but the food actually is, is some of the best um, food in the Navy. It's, it's, it, it, it was amazing. We, we had plenty of food. We operated on six hour shifts. Uh, and so, so you'd be on watch for six hours. You'd be doing maintenance or training for six hours and then you'd sleep for six hours. And, and there was a meal time between each of those six hours. It, it, it was actually, you know, 6am noon, 6pm um, midnight, mm-hmm. the typical time frames. Uh And, and that's, and there'd be a meal. Uh, even at midnight. So you, you could have a full meal 24 hours a day. Uh, we'd have uh, surf and turf a uh, couple times a patrol. Uh, we had pizza night. Every Saturday night was pizza. And you could smell the cooks um, cooking donuts uh, for the morning or baked goods <laughs> in the morning. And that smell would permeate through the entire submarine uh, because the one well, it's small in the ventilation system that goes through there. So uh, I, I got to do a shout out for our mess attendants the cooks on board they were awesome they they were top-notch best uh, best in the navy and one other shout out we we also had a corpsman we did not go to sea for for that uh for basically months at a time with with um a doctor we went with a trained corpsman um uh certified for independent training he was also awesome right so so there was great people on the crew and they supported uh the crew immensely
1: uh, so we'll, we'll we'll press on because there's a bunch of other questions I want to get to, and I want to make sure we have mm-hmm. enough time. So for our audience who are listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and nine, FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are two former Navy officers who served aboard modern-day U.S. Navy nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, so, Brad, you were on a Lafayette-class fleet ballistic missile submarine. The Ohio-class boats uh, replaced them. That's what we have operating today. And now the US Navy is preparing to build the Columbia class fleet ballistic missile submarines. How much do you think the technology has changed since you served and should these boats still be nicknamed boomers in light of the recent OK boomer insults?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's um uh, that's really interesting. <laughs> well, well to, to go um uh to go to, to what has has changed. Um I think the biggest change is is uh, not that dissimilar to what's going on in the civilian world. It's the digitization sure. uh, and and uh, the miniaturization of the computer systems. Um, the the navigation system for a ballistic missile submarine that that I was on built in the, in the early nineteen sixties, right? And so, just consider what doesn't have to be um, um, designed for today, right? We yeah. large, massive computers. That now can be fit in a laptop, right? That the computer power that can be managed in a laptop for, for navigational purposes. So, so there's, there's a number of advancements that have occurred. And I think mostly electronic. Interestingly enough, um, uh, I was able to tour, uh, a fast attack recently and, and some of the equipment is very similar, uh, to where it was because the basic engineering design of a submarine hasn't changed that much, but, but the equipment inside. Uh, designed for the war fighting, designed for for the crew, uh, that definitely has changed.
1: So David um, oh, we
2: still call boomers boomers. Um, <laughs> uh, I think so. Um the, <laughs> the the boomer concept is because of the missiles it carries. So sure. we're still carrying that missile. But, uh, I, we could talk significantly about generational differences and and I guess I would just say hey, hey each generation listen to what the other generation is talking about. And there's no if the boomers are are communicating in manners that say they didn't, we didn't have our own issues. I mean, we grew up in the '60s and '70s. Come on, folks, right? So, so uh, boomers shouldn't be talking dismissively to the younger generations, and younger generations shouldn't be dismissively uh, talking to the older generations. And Michelle should be listening better.
1: Uh, so, so Captain uh, Brad Gobway, thank you for that. Uh, and, and David Brun's a similar question to you. Uh, you were on Baton Rouge, a Los Angeles class uh, fast attack submarine. She's since been decommissioned. Uh, what do you think the Virginia class uh, nuclear powered attack submarines uh, are like today compared to the boat you sailed on?
0: Yeah, uh, tons and tons of, the, of of differences. I've not been fortunate enough to actually tour a Virginia class boat today, but. Just as a couple of examples, I mean, certainly the, um, electronics. So when I served, uh, literally there was one laptop on board the submarine and it was held <laughs> by the supply officer, not by the captain because he had to do all the inventory. So, um, uh, the other thing that, uh, that particular class of boat had was, uh, when you raise the periscope, you actually raise the periscope from a well and it goes through a hull penetration and it goes up through, through the sail. So uh, you would literally raise the periscope using hydraulics. Uh, there, there's a hydraulic ring that you twist one way, and that raises the periscope, and it comes up, and you put the arms down, and then you, you call it dancing with the great lady. But basically, you go around and around. If you wanted to see behind you, you would have to turn, literally turn the periscope to, to look behind you. Today, that's, that's been replaced with an optical monitoring mask which does not have a hull penetration, which instead has a camera, which gives you much better field of view and gives you uh, a lot more options in terms of what you're doing with that video feed. If you look at the layout of a control room for a modern submarine, it's much more flexible than than the submarine that I served on. So you have fire control and sonar within the same space. Uh, We used to have... um, a person, uh, usually a chief petty officer, whose entire job he was called chief of the watch was to move water around and to manage uh, everything that's coming and going mechanically within the ship, not non-nuclear. Um, uh, that that watch station today, so you would have a helmsman, you would have a planesman. So uh, a uh, helmsman steers rudder and uh, fairwater planes, which are the small planes, a sternsman. Uh, handles the large control surfaces at the back of a submarine. And then you had a diving officer who overlooked that and then a chief of the watch. Today, you have two uh, watch stations. You have a pilot and you have a co-pilot, uh, which means that a lot of the functions that used to be manual have been automated, uh, just like Brad said. Hmm. Uh, I think those are the, are the, uh, are the big differences. Uh, we certainly had VLS platforms. Uh, when I was in, but I think that they become um, a lot more advanced a- well. and
1: VLS means
0: uh, virtual launch, uh, sir, sir, excuse me, vertical launch okay. uh, System. So uh, instead, so more like a fleet ballistic missile submarine. So these were uh, um, missiles which were housed in a vertical position instead of being shot out of a torpedo tube. Okay. Horizontally.
1: All right, so gentlemen, here's an important question for both of you, and and, uh, Captain Brad Gobwell, I'll ask you to go first. Uh, Actually, no, I'm going to ask David Bruns to go first, uh, and then we'll we'll follow up with you, uh, uh, Brad. Uh, So, David, what leadership lessons did you learn in the submarine service? Considering that U.S. Navy submarines have nuclear reactors on board, uh, and no mistakes are generally good mistakes when it comes to nuclear reactors, I have to imagine things like integrity, character, and other similar traits are vital onboard submarines. So so what are the leadership lessons you learned, David?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly um, integrity. Uh, submarines operate in, um, I think, what you would call a zero failure mode because you can't, you can't live with a nuclear failure on a submarine. And the way submarines approach that is they're extremely procedure-driven. Uh, so high levels of education, high levels of screening of personnel – And then to back that up, there's literally a procedure for almost everything. Um, And that it's interesting when you become a civilian and you've come out of a nuclear (laughs) world where you literally have a procedure for everything and you realize that the real world is not like that. um, Two things happen. One is it's it's sort of shock. But the other thing is that you can realize that you can take the lessons you've learned and the structure that that. Was provided to you by that, by that uh, service. And you can apply that to a lot of things and really make things a lot better by, by, by helping to bring order to chaos. And I would say that that's probably the thing that I took away from the submarine service the most, uh, was that ability to look at a situation and organize it mentally. Um, uh, I think every naval officer, you know, gets lessons about integrity, and every naval officer gets lessons about hard work. Uh, I think what separates the submarine force apart is their uh, extreme attention to detail and their extreme attention to procedures, which can be applied to, uh, to uh, real life, although there are limits, as my wife will certainly tell you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, Brad Goboy, uh, how, about, how about for you?
0: Yeah, I, I I totally agree uh, with David. Uh,
2: teamwork uh, teamwork is, is a big one. Integrity. Uh, you, you can do some Google searches on the, the value of teamwork and the amount of teamwork that uh, submariners bring to civilian uh, organizations and the concept of teamwork that comes through there. Owning up to your mistakes uh, and and just the concept you you never lie uh, or falsify records. And and as I as I talk through this, it makes me uh, think of uh, one primary word, is trust, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a number of books about building trust, creating trust, earning trust, right? Uh, but w- one of the favorite uh, definitions I've got about trust is that it's character and competency, mm. right? You have to have that competency. And David touched on that. You have to have that competency through training. You can have someone of great character, but if they don't know what they're doing, you can't trust them right? to, to do that and vice versa. And so that is that is the key. And then being able to pull that into uh, civilian work, civilian processes, and process control and and creating some structure that we talk about the the um procedures and and the uh, the structure around doing things you can create great efficiencies um especially in the civilian world if you can have a team that follows uh procedures but they have to be at the highest level and insurance of quality
1: sure uh so gentlemen, we only have a, a few minutes left, so we're we're going to do a a little bit of a lightning round here. Uh, Mm -hmm. so Brad, you get to go first, then you, David, uh, what's your favorite movie about submarines?
2: Okay. It's, it's Crimson Tide. Um, I know Ronald Reagan said, uh, hunt for red October. It's a great yarn, but Crimson Tide, the verbiage is spot on. The communications is spot on. I don't think there's ever been a submarine with three mutinies on board in a week, but, you know, and, and firing weapons on a submarine. (laughs) <laughs> Not recommended. However, Crimson Tide is
0: my favorite.
1: All right, and David Brun's you,
0: Hunt for Red October. So the the book Hunt for Red October came out in in uh, when I was a plebe at the Naval Academy. The movie Hunt for Red October literally came out when I was in submarine school in Groton, Connecticut. The uh, the base rented the local movie theater. We all drove down and filled the theater and watched the first run of Hunt for Red October. Can't say enough good things about that movie.
1: All right. Uh, David, we'll go with you first. Uh, Boomers or fast attack, which is better?
0: Is this even a question? Of course it's fast attack. Brad,
1: how about you?
2: Boomers (laughs) are keeping us uh, safe, right? The deterrence. (laughs) Got to stick with boomers.
1: (laughs) All right. And and David, uh, to you, would you do it all over again if you were just getting commissioned today?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the quality of people that you work with within the submarine force and the training that you get is literally world class uh, it's it's it it can't be matched in any service or in or in any country
1: and and Brad, how about you uh,
2: I would say the same it's a it's a different uh, world today. I think I would still weigh my options however, I think I would stick with submarines and and I agree the crew is outstanding the people you're working with is amazing and the life lessons that you learned that you can take with you for the rest of uh, your career and, and in life is amazing.
1: Okay, and we have uh, just one last question for you, and we'll start with David. Uh, David, is there anything else uh, Americans should know about the U.S. Navy Submarine Service, the submarines themselves, or the men and women who serve on board? Because we do have women on board submarines today. Yes,
0: so uh, we do have women on board submarines today, which I think is a welcome change, although if you had asked 25-year-old David, I probably would have given you a different answer. (laughs) Um, uh, So one of the things that that you'll hear us say is submariners call their ships boats, I'm not sure why, but we do. So you, uh, Brad and I both, both talked about being on the boat. Um, that's because submariners call their ships boats.
1: Okay, and Brad, how about you?
2: Uh, I would say, especially for listeners, is embrace um, all service members, specifically embrace uh, the submarine crews that are out there. It's a small group of very dedicated sailors. Uh, We have submarines named after um, Minnesota uh, government entities from the state, from the two cities. And if there's an opportunity to, uh, in the Navy League, we'll bring some crew members out. If there's an opportunity to say hi, show your support, send a letter to the crew. Uh, You can get online and do those things. And I'd say just support uh, the sailors, especially those that are affiliated with this great state of
1: Minnesota. Uh, and, and thank you for that. And, and just so the two of you know, if you didn't weren't aware of it, a few weeks ago we had uh, Bill James, the president of the Minnesota Council of the Navy League of the United States, on, uh, and he talked a little bit about the fact that right here in Minnesota, with the Minnesota Council of the Navy League, they they do a lot to support the crew of the USS Minnesota, uh, which is out of uh, out of Groton in Connecticut. Uh, So, gentlemen, we've reached the end of our time today. Captain Brad Gobboy and and David Bruns, uh, thank you so much for being our guests on National Security This Week. Thank you. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio in Northfield, Minnesota on AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. Have a fantastic Wednesday and a great finish to your week.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.